Welcome to SoundLore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we sound off about recent scholarship, ideas, and current happenings from the fine folks who have crossed paths with our department. I'm Jeremy Reed, and on today's episode of SoundLore, I'm joined by Dr. Bill Hansen to chat with Dr. John McDowell to celebrate his illustrious career in our department. If I took the time to read through all of John's projects and achievements, then we'd be here until next week. Plus, I'd be putting Bill out of a job. But the short of the long of it is that John became a member of the IU Bloomington faculty in 1975, the same year as receiving his PhD in anthropology from the University of Texas at Austin. John has focused his professional career on the artistic uses of speech and music, particularly the play of creativity and tradition. He has published extensively on riddling amongst Chicano children, mythology and spiritual belief in the Sibindoy Valley in Colombia, and the ballad form Corrido, particularly along the western coast of Mexico. Throughout his career, he has held multiple chair and directorship positions across the IU Bloomington campus, has received Fulbright Hayes and Guggenheim fellowships, won the Chicago Folklore Prize, received a Lifetime Achievement Acknowledgement from the Children's Folklore Section of the American Folklore Society, and gosh, I'm doing what I said I wouldn't do. And by the way, his middle name is Holmes, and somehow I find that significant to mention. Joining us as our guest host for this episode is Dr. Bill Hansen. Bill's own career is similarly distinguished, having come to Indiana in 1970. Bill has been an anchoring faculty member of both Indiana University's Departments of Classical Studies and Folklore. Throughout his career, Bill has authored definitive texts on Shakespeare's Hamlet, stemming from his own Danish background in classical mythology. So without taking up more time, I now turn things over to Bill for a conversation between two professors emeriti. Well, good morning, John. Yeah, good morning. And, uh, John and I are actually neighbors, so uh, we're, uh, we're close in different kinds of ways. But since I'm a West Coast person, John, and you grew up in the East Coast, in, uh, born in Maryland, I guess, and but lived a lot in uh, uh, New York, I'm wondering, what was that like? But uh, is there something formative or significant about where you grew up? that colored your later life. Yeah, that's interesting. So, well, first of all, thanks, uh, Jeremy, for the nice synopsis there. Uh, and uh, I, I would just offer one small correction. I, my degree uh, from University of Texas is anthropology, parentheses, folklore. Uh, so so uh, that was the kind of particular thread that I followed uh, down there in Austin in those great days of the cosmic cowboys and anyway, all that stuff. Um, and, uh, and for Bill, I would say, I, technically, uh, well, I was not born in Maryland. I was born in Washington, D.C. Yeah. What does I say? Washington. You know, I got the, I got the, the right way of pronouncing that word. Um, but I did, I did grow up uh, uh, in those earlier years, primarily on the Maryland side in the Bethesda Chevy Chase area. And uh, as you mentioned, Bill, then later uh, around my high school uh, years, uh, the family moved to New York City and uh, I became an urbanite. Uh, and I know, well, I knew the streets of, uh, of New York fairly well back in those days. Um, I don't know, in terms of formative experiences, uh, I'm not sure I can pinpoint, I can say one thing. Um, at, at one point, it must have been in the late 1950s, a Cuban family moved into our neighborhood. And I do remember uh, finding them to be quite wonderfully exotic, uh, yeah. you know, because uh, otherwise the neighborhood was, you know, pretty, uh, pretty straight uh, and, and uh, not, not too diversified, let's put it that way. 
Um, but for sure, uh, uh, being 14 years old and arriving in New York City uh, just, uh, you know, opened up uh, a whole panorama for me. Um, I remember one, one trip when I was a youngster, uh, well, I was probably 15 or so, I'd, I'd been hearing this music on the radio. I know now it was the, the Cubano sound, you know, the son yeah. Cubano and that kind of music, maybe some Puerto Rican, uh, you know, sounds mixed in there. And I went down to a a store down in lower Manhattan and, and, and I was trying to find it. Somebody, I want to buy a record, you know, this good stuff. And <laughs> oh, they, they sold me a great record. Yo soy el son cubano. Uh -huh. uh, todos me bailan contentos, you know, wow, this is cool stuff. Uh -huh. so, so, you know, for sure that, uh, that got me interested um, in, in, uh, you know, some of these uh, larger possibilities out there in the world. And um, the only other thing I can think of, Bill, is that uh, music was always, you know, uh, something that just, um, you know, spoke to me uh, from as little as I can remember and all through the years. And I picked up instruments and um, I, I was always lured to the to the sound of live uh, musical performance. Um, so those are just, you know, the, there's nothing sort of definitive. There's no sort of moment in those uh, earlier years, but but maybe a kind of uh, foundation of some sort was was, was present there. Was well, so kind of surprising to me now since I picture you as a guitar player mm -hmm. to learn that uh, you played clarinet in college when you majored in music. That's right. Yeah, uh, I remember in in the fourth grade they used to do this in the public schools. Uh, they would uh, the music person would would have you come and and ask you to sing some you know something like Happy Birthday or the the Star Spangled Banner or whatever yeah. uh, anything that everybody knew and and then uh, some people were chosen to be violinists but I wasn't uh, so apparently the music teacher did not detect in me that sort of uh, uh, you know the ear that would work. For, uh, for for the violin, but the uh, I'm very happy that this person did recommend the clarinet, and I really had a wonderful run with the clarinet. Um, I I played all through uh, middle school, uh, what we call it, uh, oh. uh, um, junior high school and, yeah. uh, and high school, and then and then uh, college. And um, unfortunately, at some point, I sort of set the clarinet aside, and uh, there it sits. Uh, I'd have to work up my armature to even get um, a decent sound out of it now. Yeah. But I had a great run with it. I love playing the, uh, I took the music for the Bach, uh, the, the partitas for uh, solo violin and solo cello and and just ran, you know, did what I could with them on the clarinet. And yeah, it was, uh, it was, it, it was a, a good facet of my life, I would say. Yeah. Then the, what, what made you decide to uh, apply to Swarthmore? Well, that's interesting. Uh, so I had, I guess one influence was uh, a couple of my uh, good friends in high school, uh, the year ahead of me <clears throat> had gone on to Swarthmore. And I thought, um, you know, I was hearing good things from those, those guys. Um, and uh, I didn't, I decided I didn't want to go to a big, you know, school, uh, like a big state school or something like that. Yeah. I like Swarthmore. It had a, <clears throat> a kind of counterculture uh, you know, uh, reputation and aura to it, uh, being somewhat, you know, independent of uh, the the corporate industrial military complex. Uh, so that was appealing to me. And uh, yeah, I don't know that it was really a, a terribly strategic decision, but um, but but one way or another that I found myself uh, down there on the edge of Philadelphia. Yeah. 
And then, uh, but you you did, in addition to music or your main studies at Swarthmore were music, but also uh, you did something with English or English literature? That's right, yeah. So the, I would say those were the, the two areas where I, I did most of my courses. I had, in music, I had a wonderful course with Peter Graham Swing, who was a professor there at the time on, uh, on Bach. We spent a whole semester just looking at you know different facets of of uh, of of what Bach produced, uh, and I remember writing a paper. This is my first venture into structuralism. Yeah. I took one of the a movement out of one of the Brandenburg concertos and did a kind of structural analysis, uh, trying to solve the, the the problem of how how do you get to closure when you when when you set up a a nice sort of pulse. Uh, how do how do you bring it to to a close? Yeah. Um, but yeah, literature, and I had a couple of teachers uh, there that I that I liked a lot. Um, I took a whole semester on Milton, which was pretty neat uh, to do that. And um, and I had a little bit of philosophy. Monroe C. Beardsley was teaching there at the time. Pretty pretty interesting guy in aesthetics, and I I had a course with him. Uh, so yeah, I got a, a kind of a a, a a framework there too. Uh, that in some ways, yeah, I would say uh was it was a very good foundation for later uh doing uh, folkloristics yeah it sounds like it you know this combination of music and um i guess textual verbal textual studies seems uh, uh, a nice foundation for what you eventually tended to find most interesting and base your career on yeah indeed but then you went on to uh texas how did that happen well, that was a, a series of events, and you know, uh, th this is life, isn't it? It's not something that we we map out in advance. Uh, so, uh, what it got started by, um, it, I, I went into Vista Volunteers in Service to America, and uh, I was interested at, at the time the uh, <clears throat> the the field workers, uh, uh, the there there was a strike out in Delano, California with, um, there's a lot of mobilization around uh, issues involving the, the, the uh, uh, exploitation of farm workers. I remember and that strike. You remember that, that right? Yeah, right. I was out there. Yeah, oh yeah, that's right. You're a California guy. And um, <clears throat> so I was very much taken with that. Cesar Chavez uh, was emerging as a, as a significant figure. So I asked uh, to, to work in that kind of context. So they sent me out to Oregon uh, and uh, my first year was working with uh, Chicano families that were kind of following the migrant stream. They were coming up from the, the valley, uh, the San Juan Valley down there in South Texas and following the crops, you know, up uh, yeah. Lamette Valley in Oregon is a, is, was a place where, you know, they could, they could find work. But our project was uh, working up with a, a community action program was to try to help the family settle out of the migrant stream uh, one of the uh, bad side effects of that system was that the kids were pulled out of school and that it was very oh, disruptive. Yeah. So yeah, we were trying to, to to do that. And then I met so many, oh, I had such wonderful friends. I mean, uh, <clears throat> Celedonio Montes, Junior Sonny, we called him uh, Lionel Lucero, uh, uh -huh. who was from New Mexico and, and had uh, nothing but well, he had some suspicion about these, he called them ceboleros, the, the onion pickers in Texas, but um, <laughs> Lots of really uh, amazing people, and but many of them were talking about their point of origin down there in South Texas. I became interested, so I signed up for a second year in Vista, and they shipped me down to uh, Corpus Christi, 
Huh. And I uh, worked out of Corpus Christi, uh, not now not so much with migrant families, but with settled communities. Um, we were, really, we were doing things we weren't technically supposed to be doing. We were, we're getting them registered to vote. Uh, we were, in huh. some cases, helping them organize uh, to protect their rights. Um, that was always a little, uh, you know, on the, on the edge of yeah. uh, what was authorized by the uh, government, the federal program there. But anyway, uh, at one point when I was down in Corpus, a, an issue that was interesting to the families there was bilingual education. And um, there was a conference up in Austin about bilingual education. So I went up to Austin and uh, at that conference, I met Americo Paredes. Huh. And, uh, as as Bill knows, uh, America was uh, is uh, really a stellar figure in sort of the border culture there of Texas uh, yeah. and Mexico. And uh, I was talking to Americo Paredes there at some point, and he said, "You know, you should really consider coming up here to to graduate school." So I did, and um, I applied for fellowship money and uh, got this three year fellowship. It wasn't much money. In fact, one summer I had to I had to paint my uh, landlady's house just to survive. But but it was enough money to I realized I could be financially independent for the rest of my life if if uh, things worked out, and they and they kind of did. So that's what took me up to Texas, and I was very fortunate up there to uh, make contact with Richard Bauman, uh, yeah. who was uh, director of the intercultural program there. Uh, at that time, folklore was uh, sort of, uh, uh, it, it had a, it, some footing in anthropology. It had uh, some footing in the English department. That's where Paredes was. Roger Abrams was there in the English department. Um, cool. In anthropology, uh, you know, Dick Bauman, uh, Joel yeah. Scherzer, uh, and others. So uh, I found a, a, a very uh, 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 inspiring and welcoming uh, niche there when I got up, uh, up to Austin. Yeah, it seems like a, a very impressive constellation of personalities mm -hmm. in uh, folklore studies to have, uh, you know, uh, Dick Bauman and uh, Raj Abrams and Joel Schwartz, uh, where you just kind of stumbled into their into their domain, as it were. Yeah, and I, I should tell you that uh, one of the, probably the most significant single event that happened uh, during my four years there in Austin as a, as a graduate student is they, uh, that I think it was in maybe 1972 or 73, somewhere in there, they organized that conference on explorations in the ethnography of speaking. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, and that was a kind of a fresh thing there. Of course, it was all built on sociolinguistics and anthropo yeah. anthropological linguistics, so it had it had lots of roots. But it was a, a nice sort of uh, crystal crystallization of uh, of intellectual uh, activity. And uh, there, it was great. The the conference happened. All these people came and gave their papers. I remember. I still have some mimeograph copies. Mimeograph. Yeah. Mind, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know of some of the papers that uh that were circulating at the time and and as you know bill out of that uh that very important book came explorations in the ethnography of speaking yeah. and really really established that uh the ethnography of speaking as a kind of a subfield within uh, well some kind of a crossroads uh, yeah. uh pulling together those threads was it was it uh odd to these people that you had a music a major in music from Swarthmore, but then you were going to study uh, anthropology and folklore. 
I don't think so. I never, I never perceived that. And um, it's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, there's kind of a, uh, at, at least then, or I, I guess it depends on the setting. Uh, in, in, in this instance, a kind of a cleavage between um, <clears throat> your, your undergraduate studies and then uh, it feels like you start up a whole new journey uh, when yeah. you enter graduate school. And uh, that, that's how I, I perceive things. I think these, some of these different kind of parallelisms between uh, your early experiences and mine in California where when I was going to go to high school and moved about 15 miles away to a small town that was about half Chicano and half Anglo. And that really changed my life. I just, uh, like you, I was not so interested in that culture and the cultures didn't mix a real lot in that town. There weren't many people who were kind of brokers or overlapping. And uh, um, <clears throat> the, also, I was another aspect of that was that there was a real influx of um, the migrants, mostly from Texas, each summer as they are following the crops, I guess, as they were also doing there in Oregon. And we would always look for these people. And since my parents had a grocery store and I worked as a clerk in it, you know, some people were kind of like friends. You looked forward to seeing them when they came back to town, you know, with the interval of a year. And they were, uh, very distinct from the local Chicano population. They walked differently, their, their language had a different sound to it, and, uh, and, they, and they kind of socialized among themselves. But So I can appreciate a little bit some of your experiences through the lens of my own. Yeah, and, and I kind of knew that uh, because I've, I've heard your Spanish and I, I realized that you, you picked up some, some Spanish through those uh, you know, friends and, and contacts that you, that you had back then. Yeah, and I remember there was a nice record store in a nearby city, and that's where I would go and buy the Chicano records. You could buy both, you know, rhythm and blues and Chicano thing, but I would get my Lola Beltran records <laughs> and uh, and so on there. Yeah. Oh boy, that puts me in mind of uh, one time when I was down in Corpus, Los Alegres de Teran were playing. Uh -huh. You have to be kind of into this thing to know about them, but they were really a wonderful sort of border. They're really coming out of Mexico, but playing a lot of. Yeah. Uh, concerts and, and dances in uh, in South Texas, and I got to go and I met them and talked to those guys. But yeah, yeah. that that, uh, that Chicano uh, sound of the 1960s into the 1970s was was special. Uh, so your big your first big uh, folklore project, I think, would probably be the children's riddling that you carried on there in Austin. You want to say something about that? Yeah, absolutely. So that's right. Uh, uh, I uh, I had the good fortune, really, to um, to be uh, uh, tapped on the shoulder uh, to to work in this project, the Texas Children's Folklore Project. Um, this was uh, something that uh, Dick Bauman uh, project he put together, funded by the Southwest Educational Development Laboratory. And uh, they, uh, they were, I, I, I think, probably a, an NGO, uh, a nonprofit kind of an outfit that was uh, uh, dealing in uh, children's uh, culture, uh, looking at uh, ways of uh, advancing educational, uh, you know, practices and so forth. And so uh, I was uh, tapped on the shoulder to uh, work with the Chicano kids. Um, so it was a kind of a, a component of this project was a survey of uh, sort of the speech uh, practices of children in Austin. 
Um, Austin then and now uh, was, uh, you know, a very diversi diversified society uh, with uh, sort of a white or Anglo, they call them Anglos down there, population, uh, a, a significant African American population and a, a large also uh, Chicano or Mexican American population. So um, because I, I knew Spanish, uh, I was tapped to do this and really initially it was just kind of a, a, a job. Uh, yeah, I actually got paid, you know, an hourly. Uh, oh, really? Hour. Yeah. yeah. However it was, I made a little bit of money off of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, but it was great. I mean, I, I would wander the uh, there's a couple of areas in Austin. East Austin is primarily Chicano, though there's there's a, se a section there where where the African-American people families tend to live. Um, I would wander those neighborhoods. There's a section over on the other side of the of the interstate uh, where there's a, a little enclave of or there was then of Chicano families. And um, you, you probably couldn't you couldn't do this now. I mean, this was before all the protocols. Um, yeah. But I would just find some kids and I would sit down next to them and and start to talk to them and ask them, you know, sometimes I would start with a riddle or something and uh, just to prime the pump. And my main strategy was to get them talking to each other. So me and my tape recorder would, uh, you know, be uh, uh, irrelevant, not 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 uh, yeah. not noticeable to them. And that worked pretty well. I mean, kids, when they get interacting with each other, it gets lively. Uh, and uh, it, I also did one-on-one -on -one, uh, sessions with kids sometimes yeah. just to just to get their repertoire. Um, but yeah, uh, so uh, that uh, really was about collecting material. And then part of the Texas Folklore uh, Children's uh, Te Texas Children's Folklore Project was to uh, then use those uh, sort of street uh, resources to create educational activities and so forth. I was not as involved in that phase of it, but um, but I, I I was more uh, my job was to uh, to gather these uh, this uh, verbal art and speech play, and um, so I did that, and and uh, I uh, I realized once it was done that I had this body of material that could conceivably be worked into a dissertation, uh, yeah. you know, and it, it seemed like a, 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 a sort of a logical thing to do. So I remember going to talk to Dick Bauman and presenting this idea to him. And I think, you know, quite rightly, he hesitated because he said, well, if you work on these Chicano materials, you're gonna be essentially uh, going into an ethnic studies uh, area and uh, that might be a little bit you know might not work out so good uh, because uh, you're not of of that ethnicity um, but I talked to him about how what I really wanted to do was to theorize the materials uh, I felt like especially in the riddles but in the stories also even in, in the rhymes and in all of the verbal materials I had I saw that um, this was a kind of arena where uh, kids were working out uh, conceptual issues, also social uh, issues, learning how to cooperate and, um, you know, pr collectively uh, produce an event. And then on the conceptual or cognitive side, uh, learning uh, certain kinds of uh, uh, increasingly sophisticated uh, yeah. uh, ways of working with language. For example, in riddles, uh, learning that you can you can reverse the meaning of something instead of uh, uh, you know working with the the, mo the most obvious meaning you can look for those wrinkles and inconsistencies in the yeah. language. So I convinced him. Dick said, "Okay, okay, go for it." So I did, and and I did. I wrote my dissertation on um, yeah. uh, on the the speech playing verbal art of Chicano kids. 
Did, did you have a prior interest in riddles or did that just happen to be what, what uh, there's a chance genre connection? Yeah, I think it was more something that happened on the streets there. Uh, it was, uh, I was working with kids sort of in the range of four years of age to 11 or 12 years of age. And, yeah. and those at that time, and I, I don't know, I'd have to go out and, and see what kids are doing today. I mean, I'm around it. I know riddles still happen, but at that time in that setting, um, the kids loved the riddles. They, you know, that was yeah. something that um, was happening uh, in, in their lives. And so, um, I started to attend to it uh, because, yeah. uh, you know, I, in, in my collection, I had stories and songs and, you know, oh, yeah. they told they would do long renditions of I, I saw this uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon or whatever. Yeah. And I get the whole, you know, <laughs> but I wasn't that interested, yeah. although that's also interesting how they reformulate yeah. culture. But um, but the riddles really stuck out and uh, and drew me in. And I, I think partly because in the riddles, the um, these kinds of conceptual uh, maneuvers are are very much on the surface uh, of of the material, so uh, that might be part of the reason they drew me in as well. well I thought that in the reading your book, which I found to be an extremely fascinating book for all the emphasis on uh, cognitive, mm -hmm. the cognitive development of, of the kids and their their growing uh, a small kids uh, only part, partly fathoming what a riddle is a, trying to do a riddle and, and kind of not getting it right. And then they get a little older, a little more sophisticated and then really grasping what a riddle was and you know, yeah. having a, some more confidence in the form. Mm -hmm. So that emphasis that you do in the book as opposed to the more historical emphasis that I suppose would be was, was dominating riddle scholarship uh, before yeah. that. Yeah, that's uh, right. And it's really interesting. You know, on those lines, Bill, there's an anecdote I like to tell the little girl. I can still picture her. Uh, I think she was six years old. And yeah. um, we were doing the what's black and white all over riddle. Uh -huh. And uh, the answer was a newspaper. And then I said to her, yeah, but why is a newspaper red? And she said, yeah, that's the part I don't get either. You know, <laughs> but, you know probably a, yeah. a year later, that would be she would take delight in, uh, you know, that twist, that reversal yeah. uh, of, uh, of the semantics. So would things have been different if uh, Dick had assigned you to the black uh, the black neighborhood or a or a Anglo neighborhood, or do you think uh, you would have found your way to you know Chicano studies in one way or another anyway? Yeah, I don't know. I think um, uh, I think one thing. Uh, well, this is not quite answering your question, but it puts me in mind of an interesting detail. I did look at some of the. Uh, uh, materials that were being collected uh, in the Anglo community, and there were riddles there as well. They were a little bit different uh, in that, well, of course, they were there. What you didn't have the bilingualism, yeah. Uh, so a lot of the material I collected uh, in East Austin, in particular, was in Spanish. Uh, so, yeah. so they, I thought the kids had this wonderful capability of exploring two different cultures, you know, in a way through their verbal routines. Um, but I did notice in the Anglo material, there was a much uh, stronger presence of uh, popular culture, sort of uh, a lot of their riddles uh, really seemed to um, uh, draw on, uh, you know, television shows and, and yeah. uh, so it was a little, it, they, they were also interested in riddles. So, um, but yeah, getting back to your, your question, uh, I don't know uh, the the conjecture. You know, what if uh, is always uh, sort of fun to play with. But um, 
But uh, I, I mean, I think that uh, what also happened, uh, Americo Paredes, with his interest in uh, uh, traditional uh, poetry of the of Spanish America, um, you know, I was very much influenced uh, in in uh, in the courses that I took with him, and yeah. inspired really to to eventually to to head down to Mexico and and uh, go chasing after corridos, the ballads. Yeah. Um, and then you know. Uh, I, I developed a connection to a particular region in the Andes yeah. uh, down in the south of Colombia. Um, so, you know, it things happen. And uh, I, I feel like my life, I feel like I'm a kind of a surfer. I just I'm just riding the wave. You know, uh -huh. the wave is 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 dictating where we go. Yeah. Your work with the uh, the corrido. In a way, you were at least doing the first feelers for that, weren't you, there in the early 70s? So that was before you came to Bloomington and you were still in Texas, right? Well, it's true. I mean, my first, my earliest recollection <clears throat> of a corrido was uh, when I was uh, in Vista down in South Texas. I, I got to know a number of young Chicano activists and became uh, somewhat entangled and involved in, in their activities. And yeah. I would go to some of the protests and, and so forth. And it was quite, you, quite common for them to, uh, to sing a corrido, uh, especially the one that sticks out in my mind. I remember hearing it at many of these demonstrations is Valentin de la Sierra. Uh -huh. And uh, you probably know this one. It's a, it's a classic uh, corrido yeah. of uh, the, uh, the, the later phase of the Mexican Revolution. But I think they loved it because it has that line about, well, the, you know, Valentin is captured and he refuses to speak. And, and uh, at, at one point, um, he, he defiantly says, uh, Yo soy de los meros hombres que han inventado la revolución. You know, uh -huh. I'm, I'm one of the very uh, men who, who started this revolution. And, and, you know, that was an inspiring line to these young Chicano actors. Yeah. But I didn't know what a corrido was then, other than this. This is kind of cool. This this song about this guy, and he's he's really defiant and standing up for his for his rights. But yeah, it was really with American Paredes that I learned this is this comes out of a rich tradition. You can you can ultimately trace it back to uh, you know El Cid to the great medieval epics of the Iberian Peninsula, yeah. um, and then you can track it as it comes. Uh, into the new world, it interacts with narrative forms. In uh, for, in Mexico, is really where the where the 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 corrido tradition. So this comes out of the romance. Uh, in Mexico, it uh, persists, and even today, uh, corridos are telling the stories of uh, of the drug cartels, and uh, it's a very uh, alive and uh, vivid uh, cultural form. So, but in addition to uh, your uh, competence in Spanish and your interest in uh, things Hispanic and Mexican. Um, you are uh, doing work in Colombia, and you also and and there you 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 encountered also two indigenous languages that are and I I know not not only not related to Spanish or I suppose any other Indo-European language, but mm. probably not re even related to each other. Is that true? The Kamsa and the and Quechua. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Bill. So, right, so uh, uh, I, I was in that area uh, because I, I was married to a woman uh, who was from that uh, region, uh, Lenice Santa Maria. So uh, uh -huh. that was my, my first marriage. 
And um, so that brought me down to that part of the world. And I remember one day uh, I, I, I went into the market, uh, one of the market areas down in Pasto uh, in, the, in the state of uh, Nariño in the far yeah. south of Colombia. And there were these indigenous people and I, I was intrigued and I went and talked to them. And I found out that, yeah, just across the continental divide over the hill there, over the mountain, uh, these people live. And you're right, the Ingas, which is really, uh, uh, they are speaking, it's the northernmost dialect or variety of Quechua, the, the large Quechua family that's spoken from in the far south, you find it in Chile and Argentina. Of course, it's very prominent in Bolivia, Peru and Ecuador. And then up into the Sibundoy Valley, this area just across the mountains from Pasto is are the Ingas or the Inganos. And that's the northernmost variety of Quechua. It didn't go any further north than that. Um, and then, as you say, Kamsa is a, a different language altogether. It's from another language family, the Kiryasinga family, which is mostly uh, extinct, except with Kamsa being the last remaining uh, spoken uh, dialect of it. And I think you you mentioned somewhere uh, the the unusual difficulty of comes. Uh, I take it as more that both Quechua and Kamsa must be challenges, but that Kamsa is maybe in a special challenge. Yeah, because of the phonology and also, yeah, even the morphology is. Uh, I mean, there's a kind of a, a more uh, surface logic to Quechua. Um, at least this is my experience and yeah. Kamsa. Um, now, now, yeah, Kamsa, because of the phonology, there are three or four uh, phonemes or, or uh, you know, sounds in the language that um, are very hard to produce or at, and even to distinguish in some cases. Uh, um, and then the, the morphology is complex and it, it's got um, uh, 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 nominal classifiers that, uh, so you, you'll have a root to a noun, but if it's a liquid, it, it has one ending on it. If it if it's a solid object, it has a different you know uh, yeah. ending on it, and so forth. Um, well, all languages are fascinating. Uh, yeah. You know, I think every language uh, has wonderful you know features to it, and um, I have to say, uh, I really delved into both of those languages and 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 found them. Uh, I, I was completely absorbed with the with their capabilities and their their the, their intricacies. Yeah, it must be a real tribute to your, you know, language uh, skills, and it's fortunate that you had them been able to do field work with these kind of interestingly exotic people. Mm -hmm. And also, you you stayed at, at least uh, with your Kamsa work. I think you stayed with a Kamsa speaking family. Wasn't that the case? And yes. So you you really uh, must have learned uh, think you know the kinds of things you would only learn living with a family though. The food, the food that you eat, the daily courtesies, so on. Yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah, I lived with uh, uh, Justo and Maria Hakanamihoy. Well, she was a Wahibioy, Maria Wahibioy, and Justo Hakanamihoy, and their and their children. They have several several children. A couple of the older children were out of the house, but uh, four of the younger children were still at home. And boy, did I have fun with those kids. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. yeah. The, Teenage son was, uh, you know, he liked the Beatles, so I would translate the Beatles' uh, words, the language, and uh, <laughs> wow. you know, the yeah. English into into Spanish for him because our common tongue was Spanish, uh, yeah. which which probably inhibited my, the degree to which I learned Kamsa. 
uh, in a way, it would have been nice if I didn't know Spanish and I would have, yeah. um, you know, really. But I, but I did learn a lot of Kamsa. And that, that brings me to mention this bill. Uh, one of the pieces I've, I've published is, uh, I called it uh, Collaborative Ethnopoetics. And um, I really developed a collaborative method for working with these verbal texts where I would, sit, I would sit down with people. Sometimes it could be uh, the teenage sons, the teenage boys, or yeah. uh, in other cases, uh, uh, adults. And um, I would play back the tape uh, sort of line by line, and they would re-speak the words slowly to me. You can imagine how laborious this is. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I, mean, I am eternally grateful for these folks. Uh, I mean, what happened was they also became interested in in what I was doing. So, yeah. um, so they 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 became, I think, happy uh, companions in the work. But yeah, I'd play it back, and then and then I would write it down, and um, and then I would I would uh, we, little by little we would uh, sort of analyze. It got to a point where I pretty much saw what was going on. I understood the language, but yeah. uh, nuances of meaning and. Um, uh, yeah, so this was a, an, an inherently collaborative, necessarily collaborative methodology, without which I would not have been able, I think, to to appreciate what was going on in, in these uh, performances. Did you make any uh, uh, like conceptual discoveries there? I mean, did you feel like perhaps you had growing sophistication in different uh, areas in the course of that fieldwork? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that uh, I would say this. Um, I, I think I did uh, uh, come to a, a, an appreciation of a kind of what I see as a kind of a universal uh, uh, phenomenon, which is the the sort of stylistics of speech uh, have a lot to do with what the speech is meant to accomplish, what the speech can actually accomplish. And this really comes into a, an important theme I, that I, I see running through all of my work, Bill, and that is um, theorizing. Uh, I mean, I will say in a couple of my books, for example, in one of my Corrido books um, and in uh, uh, a couple, well, for sure, in, in the So Wise Were Our Elders, uh, in a couple of those books, I really was essentially trying to document and make available uh, a, a tradition. But throughout my articles and in, in a couple of my other books, I'm really, I, I think that within these materials, I'm trying to look for uh, interesting theoretical horizons. So the collaborative ethnopoetics is really meant to be a, a kind of a contribution to thinking about how, how, how does ethnopoetics really work? Uh, let, let's, let's be honest and, and straightforward about our dependency, our codependency really uh, between the native person and the uh, outsider to, to make this work. And, and I think that's true. You know, when I look at, for example, my work with Corridos, I've been really interested to understand the relationship between poetry about violence and violence in some ways seems antithetical or inimical to the, the sort of crafted, uh, you know, careful, um, you know, construction of poetry. But we, yeah. we know, uh, and I don't have to tell you as a, a Homeric scholar, we know that poetry and violence have been intimately associated through the, through the centuries. And so I, I was looking at that, taking the corrido down there in the, the, the southwestern part of Mexico in the Costa Chica. I was taking that as a kind of laboratory. So what, how does this work, this relationship between poetry and violence? And I came up with these three kinds of uh, uh, scenarios. 
at, at one level, the poetry is celebrating the violence and, and there's no way around that. There are people who try to sort of minimize that and say, oh, it's, it's not really about the violence. It, it is about the violence. There's a celebration of violence, but there are two other themes going on there. One of them is uh, the poetry is meant to contain the violence. And uh, that's a really important theme that doesn't immediately appear. But uh, when you look at the corridos and you talk to the, uh, the corridistas, the composers of corridos, you understand that they're dealing with volatile situations and um, they're trying to formulate their narratives in such a way that it doesn't throw you know gasoline on the on the fire yeah. and they're very they're very clear about what they're doing because partly it could come back to them uh, and and so uh, so there's a, a a kind of concern about containing the violence and then i found this third theme of sort of therapy in the aftermath of violent events which is you can see it um and again the composers talk about it trying in a sense to to rebuild community uh in after an episode where uh, violence has ruptured, you know, some of the uh, fabric of yeah. community. So, so in that, and and in in my in my articles about, uh, you know, different features like the Kamsa ritual language. There's this wonderful ceremonial form of language which is used in the in the um, Subindoy Valley in these uh, settings where people come together to do uh, sort of the work of society. Uh, they have this special. Um, highly elaborated poetic form of improvised speech that they use. And um, I was very interested to see how issues of accessibility, formalization, and efficacy uh, are interrelated in, uh, in the deployment, uh, the use of this particular uh, style of uh, Kamsa. Yeah, so, so theorizing is something, it, it's interesting. The materials fascinate me in their own right, but uh, it seems like I'm always uh, also angling to to get a sense of uh, okay, what can we learn in a in a broader sense here? Yeah, uh, you know about the relationship between uh, speech, language, and uh, and social process. It seems like the, the the third function that you mentioned in connection with the corridos is uh, seems closely related to your maybe growing interest in commemoration that. I don't know when that uh, started in particular. Yeah, yeah. But your eyes always seem to light up when the word commemoration uh, arises. Yeah, that's a that's a an astute observation, Bill. Yeah, uh, that came out of that uh, when I was working up the article on uh, folklore as commemorative discourse, which uh, came out in the Journal of American Folklore, maybe back in 1992, somewhere somewhere around then. I had been looking at. Um, some materials where people were talking about informative discourse and what are the sort of features of informative discourse. And it occurred to me that the kinds of things that folklorists are interested in is somehow a counterpoint to informative discourse. Informative discourse, you know, you try to be as clear as possible. You try to uh, say things uh, in a way that, uh, you know, they're not likely to be misunderstood. There can be no confusion and so forth. And obviously in a lot of folklore forms, can you introduce some sort of constructive confusion, right? It's uh, uh -huh. It, it seems like it's part of the it's part of the plan, and so I came up with this idea. Well, if you have informative discourse, what would I call the, that counterpoint? And I decided I'm go, I'm going to call it commemorative discourse. And the reason is that I found in a lot of these, and of course this came largely out of my work with corridos. I found that there is a fundamental sort of commemorative uh, 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 intent in the in the corrido. 
And um, it took me into the realm that I call folk commemoration, because obviously commemoration, they're public commemorations, they're statues and, and all sorts of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, of official sort of culture uh, dimensions to commemoration. But I became interested in the other kinds, the folk commemorations, the ones that are not institutionally sanctioned, the ones that have a lot of uh, improvisation to them, to really show the sort of agency of, of people trying to cope with, um, you know, the things that are happening in their world. And so, yeah, I, I found that uh, commemoration is, is, is something that a folklorist, we, we have uh, some useful things to contribute uh, to the conversation there. And just to give you an example, I, I worked out a kind of a three-part model where you have the you have the commemorative object, okay, uh, the the vehicle that is uh, so that could be the corrido, the ballad itself. Yeah. Um, uh, you have the 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 object that's the person who or the event that's that's being narrated, that's being displayed in the corrido, and then you have the commemorator. And, and this really is a kind of a semiotic model. And I have to say, Bill, semiotics is a thread that runs through a lot of this theorizing that I do. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, this, uh, this, this sort of uh, careful coming out of philosophy, a, a, a very systematic approach to uh, how people make meaning. Yeah, I'm thinking of areas of your career experience that we haven't covered, and I suppose one is a little bit hidden, and that was the time you spent in Ghana, since um, you, I think, developed a lot of materials there for teaching and maybe for reflection, but, um, but you didn't actually publish much on it. So a, a person scanning, uh, you know, the, uh, the more visible parts of your career might not notice that you had spent uh, some interesting time in Ghana. Yeah, you're right about that. The closest I came to publishing is uh, um, at one point, my wife, Pat, uh, and I were walking along a beach and we came to a little um, a little town uh, in Ghana uh, there on the coast. And they were they were doing this uh, ceremony and uh, it involved the dancing of the I guess the term we heard was fetish priestess. And so the drums and the dancing. And, and then at one point, the, uh, the, the Ochiami, the sort of royal uh, spokesperson, uh, did a libation and was pouring uh, uh, from a cup onto the ground and, and did this uh, speech. And I recorded it. And um, then I got together with one of my students. I was teaching a class at uh, Legon at the University of Ghana uh, with Kwesi Yanka and Kofi Anyidaho, who had been students here in our program, wonderful students in, in our department. And, uh, and one, one of the students was from this Ga community, helped me translate it again, collaborative ethnopoetics, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and gave me some, some notion about who, which deities were being uh, in, invoked and so forth in this. Uh, yeah in this. So uh, I, I, I do have that up on my website, and I guess that counts as publication, but I always shied away from it because I'm not an Africanist, and I never really felt that I had a strong uh, enough foundation to, um, to, to put myself forward in that way. But you're right. Uh, we spent uh, uh, half a year in Ghana. I had a teaching Fulbright uh, so uh, it was not a research Fulbright. I was uh, with Kofi and, and Kwesi. Uh, I was uh, participating in a course on uh, oral poetry, a wonderful course, great students, really. Bill, this was a fantastic experience. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, um, one of the things, the, the whole first part of the semester, the students were on strike. And um, that had the advantage of 
every weekend with Kwesi or Kofi or uh, somebody, we would take a trip to their to their village. All of yeah. these professors who are very sophisticated, you know, international yeah. scale, uh, you know, uh, thinkers and scholars. And here's Kwesi, who is, you know, just a uh, a wonderful, um, you know, uh, master of uh, of English uh, prose and and English uh, speech. And Kwesi has now become the um, he's in charge of higher education in the in the government over there in Ghana. Uh, but in any case, uh, uh, then when we got into the classroom, um, I had the wonderful experience of, you know, interacting with the students there. Um, fond memories of visiting the loggia, which is a custom that we should bring to this country. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, these are like pubs that are for the professors and you go and you have oh, a beer yeah. and you have a kebab and you and you wax uh, eloquent about, uh, you know, whatever topic. Um, and I also played on the uh, the uh, university faculty soccer team, uh, wow. which was fun because we had we had a guy there, Vladimir. Everybody knew he was KGB. Uh, it was back in the Soviet <laughs> Union, and the Ghana the, the 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 Ghana at that time was kind of aligned with the uh, Iron Curtain. Uh, yeah. countries um, it, but but Vladi, Vladimir was was fun he was on the team so we called our team jokingly a kind of uh, United Nations uh, team but uh, yeah that was a very significant experience I think it helped me uh, you know appreciate a whole uh, other uh, cultural uh, setting and and uh, opened up some comparative perspectives that have been very very useful to me well for the future I think uh, I know you're you are very involved in this um, dirt uh, effort. Maybe you uh, would like to say a few words about uh, explaining that. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, that's that's been a, a, a kind of a nice uh, uh, benefit to uh, sticking around and not retiring at age sixty-five. Yeah, I'm I'm seventy-five years old now, so uh, uh, I waited till I was seventy-four. Uh, to actually retire. So I passed up that nice 1820, you know, package oh, that yeah. they, they offer you. I was just having too much fun. But one of the benefits is this DIRT uh, project. And this really emerged, uh, it came out of, um, at a faculty retreat, I think back in maybe 2015, 2016, somewhere back there. Um, uh, I was chair at the time and of the department. And I, 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 I sent people off into small groups to talk about ideas. And the the group I was with, we we talked about cultural sustainability. Uh, it was Sue Tui, Rebecca Dirksen, and myself, and uh, we had a really nice conversation, and we 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 liked it. So we continued to kind of correspond about it. And next thing you know, we're 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 talking to colleagues in other departments, folklorists and ethnomusicologists here and there, and uh, we decided to put together a symposium. We got some nice support from IU. One of the things I will say about IU is the infrastructure of, uh, you know, local support for projects is 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 really quite uh, um, effective. Oh. And uh, we got a little support from Kahi or um, New Frontiers or w one or another yeah. of these uh, programs, and and we were able to put together a symposium in 2017. Uh, before that, we had five people come to plan the symposium. Uh, Rory Turner came and. Um, um, Chad Hamill came and a few others. And uh, then we did the symposium in March of 2017, brought a bunch of people, uh, had a couple of days of uh, 
you know, uh, sessions and so forth. And then out of that, we thought, well, this is kind of cool. So uh, maybe we should make a book. And uh, I don't want to do this again, but but we did it. We did it. Yeah. We made a book. Um, it's it came out uh, last month, uh, University of Illinois Press. Uh, it's called Performing Environmentalisms, Expressive Culture and Ecological Change. And it's an edited collection of papers, mostly emerging from uh, the symposium. We had a Jeff Todd Titan was not able to come to the symposium, but we brought him into the book. There are a few people who are at the symposium who who are not present in the book, but it's for the for the most part, it is a, a compilation from the the March 2017 symposium. And uh, I have a piece in there uh, about what I call eco performativity. And this will pull together some of the things that I've been I've been going on about just now. Yeah. Um, in that, um, it I'm I'm looking at a discourse that is uh, focused on uh, the environment, uh, the relationship of human beings to the natural world, of nature to culture, uh, and so forth. Um, but I'm looking at how uh, that discourse uh, can be especially effective. In settings where it's where it's stylized appropriately and can have powerful emotional and even uh, just uh, pragmatic effect. So eco performativity is really ways of making things happen in terms of environmental uh, concerns by uh, producing and effectively uh, performing uh, uh, discourse uh, that is. Uh, again, appropriately stylized to, to create these uh, special levels of efficacy. So yeah, yeah this, is, this has become an interesting project. I was, I was leading the team uh, until I retired. Now Rebecca Dirksen has taken over and has yeah. some good, good ideas for ways that uh, we're gonna carry it forward. John, I think, I think our, uh, a lot of time may have uh, wound down or about to, to wind down. Is there anything that we uh, really should have covered that we didn't happen to touch upon. Well, Bill, you've done a good job, I think, of uh, guiding the horse in, in the right direction. Uh, the horse would be me, I suppose, here in that <laughs> metaphor. But I guess one thing I, would, I, could, I could close with is evoking uh, some of the time that, uh, that you and I have uh, interacted. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think back to those early days, I call us the Georgian Room Five, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, we weren't organized. We didn't have any bylaws or anything, but um, but it was a group of friends that uh, we were all assistant professors and. It was know, our loggia. Our loggia. <laughs> there was our loggia. Yeah, just trying to find our way, and you know, Carlos Pacota and uh, Beverly yeah. Stafford and David Pace and yeah. um, and uh, and of course you and I and and uh, you know through the years you and I have uh, you know interacted and uh, uh, worked collaborated on on a number of projects and. And I'm thinking now of Jiffer Reviews, uh, JFRR. Yeah, yeah which, you and I, you and I founded that. Yeah, and you, you really, you brought it uh, to my attention. I remember sitting out on the picnic table in front of the old 504 North Fest one day, and yeah. you're saying, "Well, in classical studies, they have this Bryn Mawr thing, and they they send out reviews on, uh, you know, in, into people's emails, and yeah. uh, and 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 we were both kind of lamenting. It, it felt like the the journals in folklore studies at the time weren't weren't particularly adept at keeping up with publications. Yeah. And, uh, I'm not faulting them because it's it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but yeah, out of that conversation uh, and with with Arl Lomel, who who you know knew how to 
program computers to do things. Yeah. Uh, we created this and that was back, uh, our first reviews were back in uh, January of 2006. So we're, we're 15 years into it now and, and uh, yeah. still going strong. Yeah, and, uh, and you and I have obviously been the mainstay, the, the constants yeah. uh, in yeah. that story. Yeah, yeah. We've had a, a series of wonderful student helpers over the years. Uh, oh, yeah. And then uh, Henry Glassy joined us and Brandon and- uh, Yeah. Right, right, yeah. So uh, so I think this conversation is a, a nice kind of culmination of, you know, uh, uh, if you wish a sort of a pattern of uh, you and I finding, you know, good good spaces to, uh, to do uh, fun things together. Yeah, very much. Nicely said, and I appreciate your comments. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks, Bill. I really appreciate your, you know, guiding, guiding us through this. I've enjoyed, you know, reflecting a little bit and, and trying to tease out some, you know, something meaningful out of these many years of being a, yeah. a folklore. Well, you're a, a friend and a colleague and a neighbor. Yeah. But, well, uh, thanks, Bill. Nice to talk with you and visit John. Soundlore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Jeremy Reed. Music provided by Pagliacci and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Soundlore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thank you for listening.